right. Thank you, Marv. Well, good morning. You know, if you're just joining us and you don't know who I am, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And we, um, as Jake said, we are going to be studying in the book of First Samuel this morning, which is kind of at the beginning of your Bible. It's probably the front, first 20%. Um, it's, there's First and Second Samuel. They're, they're both pretty long books. So if you just kind of flip through that first like quarter of your Bible, you should be able to find it there. And we are in chapter 30 today. Um, I feel really loud, Aaron. <clears throat> am I loud? You can't get me too loud when I'm just warming up because it'd be like a, well, most of you aren't old enough to remember the Memorex. Is it Memorex commercials where the guy's sitting in the chair in the lampshade? No? Lots of blank stares? Okay. All right. Well, um, uh, th- you know, thanks for joining us this morning, and um, I'm sorry to be an embarrassment up here, but um, uh, yeah, we are studying the book of 1 Samuel. Um, you know, as we've been studying for Samuel over the last several weeks, we've been kind of seeing our two main characters, Saul, who's the like legal king of Israel, and the first king of Israel, who was the king that kind of met everybody's like standards of what they wanted in a king on his down, on a downward spiral of of where he where he just had this religion of convenience, a religion of like following everybody's expectations, but he never had genuine faith in the Lord himself, and his downward spiral kind of kept and he. He just never, never, never turned to the Lord genuinely. And last week we saw him kind of hit rock bottom where when he faced the, when he faced the, the armies of the Philistines, he got scared. And when the Lord didn't answer him, he, he uh, instead of like reflecting on himself, like why would the Lord be like upset with me? He just continued to take things into his own hands, and, and he went to a necromancer, got some, got some advice from the necromancer, only to find out that the very next day when he goes into battle, he's going to die. Along with his, his sons, they're all going to die. It was bad news from the person that spoke to the dead, you know, as she brought Samuel up. You know, the, we haven't gotten to that, that story, though, because in the text we saw last week, we flashed back several days. And we saw David in his downward spiral continuing in, in, in what he was in. And, and he got tired of being hunted by Saul, who was trying to kill him because he was, David was God's choice for king. And so he, he told himself that, you know, the best thing that I have going is just to go, like, live in the land of the Philistines and just, like, benefit from the best that the Philistines have to offer. And what he did is while he was there, he, he, you know, he was deceptive to King Achish. King Achish gave him his own city, and, and it seemed to be working for him. Like, he had safety. Like, uh, King Saul stopped, to, stopped hunting him. He, he had, like, security because he got his city. So he had, to, like, these four walls around him for him and his, his men and their families to live in. He, he, uh, he was kind of prospering in the land of the Philistines as he was, like, raiding other, uh, other people groups and, like, plundering them. Now, the problem was, is he just kept on this downward spiral, and, and what we saw last week is that he hadn't hit rock bottom yet, but we're going to see today that he will. And, but even in the midst of his spiral, one of the things that just shows God's faithfulness that we also saw last week is that God was sovereignly moving his program for rescue of David and for redemption for it, and, and that the schemes of men and the weaknesses of his servants cannot, like, undermine that like God accomplishes his purposes you know I got some feedback uh last week about my message um every every Tuesday at staff meeting um the staff critiques my 
message from the week before. And, and one of the critiques I got was that uh, constructive criticism was that I had so many references at the end of my sermon, like, um, that, that the person, I should have followed up and found out exactly what was the, the exact words to me. It was like, it's kind of a bummer. And, um, and it, was, it was good feedback uh, because, uh, you know, sometimes, like, sometimes you can just get this tidal wave of information and you really can't internalize it. And, and so I appreciate that. But one of the things that made me reflect on was there were all scripture references about how God, like, accomplished his purposes for his people in the midst of crazy circumstances. And it made me reflect on the fact that, that um, the story of the people of God in the Bible is a story where God is faithful to his people regardless of, like, the political situation and landscape that they find themselves in. You know, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible at all, you might remember Moses in Egypt and the people of Israel were, were enslaved to the greatest superpower of the day, the Egyptians. Guess what? The people of God are still here. The Egyptian empire, like, rose and fell. You know, after that, they encountered, like, People group after people group after people group, like of lesser nations. And then there was like the Babylonians, the superpower of the day. Or before the Babylonians, actually, it was the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the, the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And, and guess what? Each of those nations rose and fell. And God's people continued to move forward. You know, it continues to the modern era. Like, God's churches continue to thrive, like, under communism and under capitalism and under, like, persecution and under prosperity and under, through the world wars, through the Middle Ages, through the, guess what? We're still here. Like, God's purposes continue to move forward. And we'll see that in, even in this, in this text today. And, and it, re- it reminded me of a quote that I heard from Mark Dever. Mark Dever is a pastor of a church in Washington, D.C. I think his church building is only like five blocks from the Capitol building. It's been there a long time. It's a pretty big church. And he said this about these things that we're talking about. He says, before and after America, there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. You know, it's not a certainty because we have, like, political power. It's not a certainty because we have all of this influence. In fact, all of those, like, biblical stories we talked about, Egypt, Babylon, Media, Persia, Assyria, it wasn't the people of Israel's, like, strength and influence and position that caused them to move forward. It was the fact that they worship the one who has all power and all all influence, and who has promised that he will build his church. And like, even the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. Like, God's purposes move forward, and nothing can undermine it. And that's what brings us to our text today. You know, in our text today, we have this, we have David, and we're going to see kind of two things happen with David. We're going to see David hit rock bottom. Um, And then we're going to see, like, throughout this text, this contrast between Saul um, what Saul did when he kind of hit rock bottom and what David does, does when we hit rock bottom. And then more importantly, um, we're going to see how like once he like returns and arises kind of from the ashes of his life and returns to the Lord, how, how he gives us, gives us a picture of our true King Jesus Christ. So please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of First Samuel chapter 30, and then we'll pray, and then I'll, I'll get into the text. To get, we'll get into it together. This is God's word for his church. 
It says, then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoham, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and, and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you are a God who's worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise because you preside over the affairs of men and, and that we get to um, participate in your victory over sin and death and, and all of the forces that rise up against you. And so, Father, I just pray that you would allow me to communicate your word faithfully this morning. Um, that you'd empower me to speak, that you'd open our hearts to hear, and that we would be um, changed and trust you more um, because of what we hear this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, as we get into these verses, just a little background. You know, it it, it gives us a little time marker. and a location marker there in chapter 30, verse 1. It came about that when David his men came to Ziklag on the third day. So if you remember, um, Ziklag was the city that David had been gotten. So this is his new hometown in the, in the uh, nation of the Philistines. And um, it says that he arrived there on the third day. It was the third day from when they left the army of the Philistines, um, like halfway up to do battle with, with Israel. If you remember, David, through his duplicity, had gotten himself into this situation where the, the king of the Philistines was calling David and his men up to go fight with them against the people of Israel themselves. And that's what we saw last week where God sovereignly, even without David really asking, like rescued David from the predicament that he got himself in. Like he, he didn't want to go up and fight against the nation of Israel. If he refused, they would probably have killed him. And God delivered him from that. You know, the, and, and that was about 40 or 50 miles away from the city of Ziklag. So it takes him three days to walk back. So probably three days to get there. They, they, they have this quick turnaround and they're immediately sent away. They've been marching for six days. And they come back to the city. I'm sure that they were looking forward to seeing their families. They were looking forward to like getting it, sleeping in their own beds. They were tired from like six days of marching, like with all of their military gear with them. And as they're approaching the city, they see like the smoke rising up into the sky. And they arrive to find out that, that someone, at this point, David wouldn't have known who it was, had raided their city and burned it with fire. Think about that for a second. Like everything that David had been working for, his desire for safety, his desire for security, his desire for a place for his men and for their families, and, and all of the scheming and treachery and, and everything that he had to do to get there, it was just all smoldering around him. And there was no sign of their wives. There was no sign of their kids. The streets that used to be filled with like happy noises of families were just a burned out rubble. As you can imagine, 
David and his men's response was like pretty normal, I think, here. It was burned with fire, verse 3. Their wives and their sons and their daughters had been t- taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. And what a, what a like amazing statement. They wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Some of you guys have been there. In this world we live in, like every once in a while, in the in the course of life in this world, like the facade of like that we that we try to build around ourselves to tell us that this world isn't as broken as we want as we think it is, like comes crumbling down, and we're we're in, we're faced like full on with just like the brokenness of this world and all, and the fact that this whole planet, the whole universe, needs redemption. And David and his men found themselves there, and they were weeping until there was no strength in them to weep. They were just undone. <clears throat> it was just when you thought it couldn't get any worse. Verse, uh, verse 6, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. You know, I can I, I just can't even imagine that. Like David, whose whose men have been loyal to him for like years now, who they've been through thick and thin together, as they're all like weeping there, then the murmuring starts, right? Oh, it was David's idea that we came to the land of the Philistines to begin with. It was David's the one that schemed with Achish to get us a city. It was David was the one who had raided the Amalekites and killed all of their families. David was the one who who brought us here. It was David who got us in the trouble with Achish. And while we were gone, look what happened. We should just kill him and be done with it. I think that's rock bottom, right? He's all alone. Everything he had is burned to the ground. And his wife, his wife's wives are gone. And, and his men are rising up against him to kill him. You know, there's a huge difference, though. And one of the interesting things about the time marker of three days later is that it, what, you know, the people that do all this math and figure this stuff out, I, I didn't do it myself. I read it. Um, but this, this moment when David arrives back at Ziklag is the same moment when, when Saul witnesses the Philistines. It's the same day that Saul witnesses the Philistines, and he re- kind of hits rock bottom, and the Lord doesn't speak to him, and he goes, like, develops this plan to go that night to the necromancer. So while Saul is reaching kind of like on his journey to rock bottom and is coming to this place where Saul is greatly distressed, at the same time, David is as well. Saul turns to the necromancer, but look what it says at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is the first time in chapters that we've seen David actually acknowledge the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Finally, when he had nothing else, he like turned to the Lord and found strength in him. You know, there's lots of Psalms that David's written, and we don't know for sure which ones might have been written at this moment, but um, I think the lessons that he's learned over his life about the Lord uh, kind of like, 
like work themselves through, but Psalm 86 is one of those. This is what he says in Psalm 86. He says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve your, my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. I think I have that on the screen. Jen, can you throw that up on the screen, that, that last slide, I think? <clears throat> nope, one before that. There you go. Um, listen to what he says. Make glad the soul, like, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. He's appealing to the Lord for grace, right? He says, make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You know, right before this, in the slide before this, I think, he said that, he said, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. If I am afflicted and needy, preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. Like, I don't like those, that last phrase. Like, because I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not sure I'm godly enough to claim that I'm a godly man. Anybody feel that? Like, they've got it dialed? So I'm like, well, this psalm totally doesn't apply to me. Right? Anybody? But listen to what he says. Like, what is he bringing to the Lord? He's bringing to the Lord his affliction and his need. He's asking the Lord to preserve his soul. He's asking the Lord, oh, you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. He's like, I'm going to trust you to save me and deliver me from my affliction and my need and preserve me. Next slide again. I need your grace, oh, Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Then he says this. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Why? For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. David's not coming to the Lord out of his own righteousness. In David's mind, the thing that makes him a godly man is what? That he's actually coming to the Lord. And that he's crying out to the Lord in his need. And he's asking the Lord for his forgiveness I lift up my soul to you because I know you are good and ready to forgive. It's the acknowledgement of his sinfulness and his need for forgiveness. And he's trusting in God's character, not his own. You know, and I can imagine that if David had written this song beforehand, maybe he would be like, probably not singing it to himself, but maybe reflecting on the lyrics of it. But he's afflicted and he's needy, and he turns to the Lord, and he, he experiences God's forgiveness, and he finds strength in him. I think there's a bunch of lessons we can learn from David in this. You know, because we, we all do the same thing. We all put ourselves on the spiral of self, self-reliance and self-righteousness and trying to solve things in our own, in our own ways and not trusting in the Lord and following him to, like, meet those things. And, and by God's grace, last week we saw David sa- God save David from his circumstances. This week, God's saving David from himself. And I think if you're honest with yourself, like, your, your biggest problems aren't your circumstances. It's what goes on inside your heart. And for David, for at least a year and a half, 
he had been just living as if God didn't exist, just taking things into his own hands and trying to make things work, and it all burned down around him. And finally, he returns to the Lord. You know, so you young people, you know, every day you're going to be faced with decisions. Like, am I going to trust Jesus and trust his word in this and follow him? Or am I just going to, like, try to find my safety and security and place in, like, by, by being accepted in this world? Same thing for, you know, all of us. There's countless ways we do it. We try to, like, make it all work and not trust the Lord and trust in the Lord. And, you know, by his grace, sometimes he allows it to just burn down around us so that we return to him. If that's where you find yourself in, I just encourage you to do that because he is good and ready to forgive and he's an abundant and loving kindness to all who call upon him. You know, the other thing I think we can, we can learn from David is that is that David's life here foreshadows what's ultimately going to happen with the nation. Because inasmuch as that David continued to, to live as if God didn't really exist, if, as he continued to live in his own strength, if, as he continued to live by his own agenda, where did it get them? His city is burned down and his people are taken captive. The story of the monarchy of Israel until it comes to an end at the end of Second Chronicles is that very same thing. The, the kings that we place above ourselves, those, those, things that we, those people that we look to for security and safety and hope. If they're not the Lord, they eventually lead us down this path of, of, that ends up in like burning down in captivity. And we need to realize like, uh, like the, the powers and influences of this world will never give us what our hearts truly desire. David and his men discovered that, and they began to turn on him. But David finally turned to the Lord, and things began to change. You know, the fact that it's phrased there, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God, I think is important for us because at the beginning of this book, Hannah, if you were here at the beginning of this book, who was this woman who God met in her hour of need, um, she prophesied. And one of the things that she said in, in 1 Samuel 2, 2, chapter 10 is this. She says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them. He will thunder in, in the heavens. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That, that idea of exalting the horn of his anointed is, is this idea of, of um, like adding strength and power to the one, the anointed one, the one upon whom his spirit came to rest, which was David. But this is the first, the phrase his anointed is the, and that word anointed is the word, is the word Messiah. It's the first place where the promised coming king of Israel is referred to as the Messiah. And what, what we discover is, is that, and the reason why it's important is that as, in as much as David was like following down his own path, he was no different than King Saul. They were both like crashing and burning. But once he returned to the Lord and the Lord strengthened his anointed one, he becomes for us once again this picture of the coming king, this picture of Jesus Christ who is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy of Hannah 
from chapter 2. And as the story unfolds, we begin to see this picture of the kind of king that God has for his people. So um, let me just read. I'll start reading in verse 7. It's our second point this morning is that the strengthened king arises, and it's this picture. Um, David becomes this picture of of Jesus Christ for us. Um, Let me start reading in verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to me, Pursue, for you shall overtake them, and you shall surely rescue all. So David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, um, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor remained behind. Now, it's really interesting what happens here, because immediately after finding his strength in the Lord and returning to the Lord and experiencing, like, coming back to him, David arises and talks to the priest, Abiathar, who, if you remember, he was the last priest left living after Saul killed all the priests. And he had the ephod, which is how the priest communicated with the Lord and, and sought answers for things. And he asks through Abiathar, like, if, if they should pursue the Philistines, and God answers him. When we saw Saul, it's really clear that God didn't speak to Saul. God's word didn't go with the kings of the nations, but God's word was found here with King David. It's really important that we, that we pay attention to that. Like, this coming king, the king that, are, that will arise is one in whom God's word like dwells with. One whom God speaks to. You know, in the, in the Jewish like, mind, like in, in, the, in the mind of the scriptures, like God's word like, is the source of life. He created the universe. How? Through his word. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 47, I think I have this on the screen. He says this. This is right before the nation of Israel is going to go into the promised land. And he's telling them, hey, make sure you listen to and obey my words because it is not an idle word for you. It is indeed your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. It is not an idle word for you. It is your life. So the fact that God is speaking to his anointed king is like, and this, this one comes is the one who is like, who, who brings God's life. The story goes on. It says that they're supposed to go, in fact, God gives David like some, some really encouraging news that he's going to rescue all. And David immediately um, sets off with his 600 men, but then they come to this brook that they have to cross, and 200 of them are too exhausted. They just marched, marched for six days. They had just seen, like, everything in their life burned to the ground around them, and they just didn't have any more strength. And so they're like, we can't go on. So David leaves those 200 behind, and we'll come back to them at, towards the end of the story, and 400 go on to pursue um, these people. And you see God's good hand on, on what they're doing. Verse 11 Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. 
And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. So there's two really important pieces of data that this Egyptian gives him. They find this Egyptian slave in the field, and he is so weak that they give him food to eat. Apparently, fig cakes are good when you're in that situation. Not sure why that detail is in there. I would like rack my brain about it. But and and clusters of raisins has to be on the vine clusters. But anyway, really nothing, nothing there. Okay. Um, Two pieces of information. One, the Amalekites had a three-day head start. And he says, oh, we raided this area, we raided this area, and we raided this area. And, last thing he says, we burned Ziklag with fire. Apparently, that was the only city they burned down. The Amalekites, like, I think probably suspected who it was, who had been raiding their cities. And like, this is payback, David. We're going to torch your city. They had a three-day head start. But this guy might have known where the Amalekites were going. So David says to him, this is in verses, um, verse 15, hey, will you take me down to them? Will you show me where, where they are? And he says, as long as you don't give me back to them or kill me. Story goes on, and this is where we see something else about like the Messiah, that he's, a, he's the coming king, is a king of rescue. Look what happens, verse 16. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. You know, it's interesting. So, so David and his band of 400 men arrive and they like overlook the camp of the, of the Amalekites. And apparently the Amalekites, so, so like the, some of those cities that they had mentioned were Philistine cities in the cities of Judah. Like the Amalekites were opportunists because the Philistines had just marched their armies up to attack the land of Judah. So the Amalekites are like, oh, nobody's home. Like we're going to make a raid, right? Because the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Judah are days away. And so they had raided these cities. They had plundered them. There were so many of them that, that the author can use this hyperbole. Like, not one man escaped except 400 of them. Right? Like, <laughs> which means, like, there were so many, Amal- I mean, so many Amalekites, like, that the 400 seemed like nothing compared to, like, what got destroyed they're partying they're like man david and the philistines and the people of judah are like miles away nothing's going to bad's going to happen to us we're going to eat drink and be merry and david and his 400 men like fall upon them and, and and there's this battle that goes like all that day into the night and i think like all the way until the next morning However that, however that plays out. 
David's fighting the Amalekites on the same day that Saul ends up fighting the Philistines. Two battles going on. And there's the, the emphasis, like, on, on this text isn't, isn't so much on the battle, but there's this emphasis on, like, the rescue. David rescued. In fact, there's this repeated use of the word David through here that's almost awkward. Like, um, verse, verse 17, David slaughtered them. Verse 18, David recovered all the Amalekites taken and rescued. Actually, it literally says, and David rescued his two wives. Verse 19, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people had said. And they said, this is David's spoil. Like, this is the act of the king. The, the anointed one from God who is coming both in judgment and rescue. And the, the author wants to tell us that of everything that David went to go rescue, guess how much he lost? Zero. Like, our king is a king who rescues his people and does it perfectly and brings it all back. While David's rescuing his people and his children and the children of his men, Saul and his sons are being killed. And David, and, and we'll see next week that Saul actually like falls on his own sword to end his own life. Kings like the nations will never be able to rescue you like Jesus will. The anointed one rescues all. In fact, Jesus talks about this. Like in John chapter 6, he's not using military terminology here, but listen to what he says. He says, this is the will of him who sent me. He's talking about the Father. That of all that he has given me, I lose. How much? Nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on the last day. And if you, are, if you belong to Jesus Christ right now through trusting in him as the one who is good and gracious and ready to forgive, the one who has paid the penalty of your sin on the cross so that, as Marv said during worship, so that our shame and our guilt and our condemnation can be like, taken away because it was heaped on Jesus, guess what? He will raise you up on the last day. You're not going to get there because you're strong or because you're, you're uh, more spiritual than everybody else. Your life is not insecure. In the Lord, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And he will be raised up because the king is the king who rescues and loses none. And take comfort. You don't have to keep on this like cycle of like, of like, the Lord loves me, loves me not, He loves me, loves me not, He loves. Me. You know what I'm talking about? The Lord loves you. He gave His Son for you, and He will raise you up one day. So just stop doing the spiraling thing and just come back to the Lord because He is good and gracious and ready to forgive. He'll be faithful. He is faithful always. So not only is a king through whom God's word comes, not only is the king of rescue, 
But he's this king of lavish grace. Look what happens then, starting at verse um, 21. So in verse 20, we have David bringing all of his spoil back. And we keep having this repeated, like, David expression. Verse 21. And when David came to the two hundred men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Basor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men who were among those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. So here's, a, here's what happens. David comes back, and they come back with all the spoil of the, uh, from the, they got from the Amalekites, and they come back with all their women and children. And then apparently David's band of people is still a bunch of riffraff. Because it says all the wicked and worthless people that were with David said, well, they didn't even go into battle with us. So, like, why should they get any of the spoil? Right? We'll let them have their women and kids, their wife and kids back. But no, we're going to keep the spoil for ourselves. It's a completely human response, right? They didn't do anything to earn it. Why would we give them all of this wealth that we've taken they just sat back at the brook and rested while we continued to march and fight. Look at David's response to them. It's really, it's really helpful because he, he shows them just God's, like, models for them, God's lavish grace. Look what he says. Um, verse 23. Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers. Let that sink in for a second. All the wicked and worthless men that follow David, he says, you are my what? Brothers. And like David immediately comes in with all sorts of like relational grace to these guys. He's like, you know what? We're brothers. They're our brothers. And right, like it shouldn't be that way. He like levels the playing field. He could have like, pulled rank. He could have done everything. He just, you know what? You are my brothers, even though you're wicked and worthless men. You know, and what we're going to see is like they, as they follow David, like his righteousness, like his grace, then they, they follow him in his grace. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For both he who sanctifies Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of your congregation. I will sing your praise. What he's saying is like, like Jesus is the one who like makes us holy. Jesus is the one who makes us right. Like when we when we believe in Jesus and we're identified with him, like we become part of his grace and he's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. It's pretty remarkable. Cuz I there's some of you I wouldn't be able to want to claim, right? Like not to mention any names, Jake. Um, He knows I'm kidding. Like I said, that's my love language, right? Love you, brother. So, my brother, wicked and worthless. Um, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, brethren. 
And then there's this great picture. I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going to stand out there in the congregation with you, Jesus says, and I'm going to praise the Lord with you all. Because of the sanctifying work of our king who rescues us, like he's our brothers. There's this like grace relationally. Then he also talks about his, like he models for them this gracious generosity. Look what he says. Um, Verse 23 again. Then David said, you must not do so, my brothers, for what the Lord has given us, who has, for with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hands the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to battle, so shall his share be who stayed by the baggage. They shall share alike. It's interesting what he says. He says, you know what? Like you guys don't obviously understand what's going on here. Because it's the Lord who kept us. But he's saying it's the Lord who protected us all this time. It's the Lord who delivered into our hands the band who came against us. It's the Lord who gave us all of this stuff. It wasn't us. This is all God's grace to us that he allowed us to rescue our families and and to plunder our enemies. It's all from the Lord. And then he says this interesting question. Who will follow you in this? If you really understand it's all from the Lord, the people that understand it's all from the Lord, who's going to follow you in this like miserly sort of like, you didn't do anything to earn it, so I'm not going to give it to you thing. Um, John Woodhouse comments on this. I think it's a really helpful quote. I'll, I'll put it up there. The question is rhetorical, of course. The implication is that no one who understood the present situation as David did in terms of the Lord's goodness towards them all could countenance greed and selfishness as a response. This is the powerful logic of faith. Faith sees the grace of God and must draw the implications. The logic of David was essentially the same as that of Paul with the Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? But look at that phrase. Faith sees the grace of God and must draw the implications. If you see what God's done, if you understand that it's all from his grace, that he's the one that kept you, he's the one that's blessed you, He's the one uh, that, that's rescued you. How can you, oh, he, he used this phrase like countenance, like, what did he say? Countenance, like selfishness and something else. I think he's a British guy. He uses fancy words, but I'm not. How can you respond with like greed and selfishness if you know that God is the one who has granted it to you like completely? You know, how much of your life do you withhold like that same relational grace that you received from the Lord where you don't respond to people because they didn't earn it, they didn't deserve it, they hadn't done anything, or maybe they've done worse than that, they've like wounded you? Or how much do you hold back even like the material grace from people because they just don't deserve it? They didn't earn it. Our Lord Jesus puts it this way. Treat others the same way, this is in Luke chapter 6, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. What he's saying is like, the way of the world is that you love those who love you. You do good to those who do good to you. You lend to those who are going to pay you back. That's what everybody does. He goes on. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. He's like, no, as followers of Jesus, we're not called to be just like everybody else. We're called to be sons of the Most High. We're called to reflect his character to people. We're called to, we're called to be, do good to our enemies. We're called to be generous and gracious and lend. We're, we're called to show the same grace and mercy um, to others that we've received ourselves. And David says, David says, like, who's going to listen to you? Anybody that understands God's grace won't listen to you in this. If you understand God's grace... And to the degree that you understand God's grace, I think is to the degree to which you'll be free to like, love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Because why? You're, you're looking for the reward that's great that will come when God's kingdom comes to us in its fullness. And you're not trying to sell out to the land of the Philistines and just accumulate for yourself the best that this land has to offer. You know, um, Marv, why don't you come up? You know, in closing, I just want to, I guess I just want to challenge us to, to live a life of worship. Because we worship a Messiah, a king, who is this king to whom God's life-giving word comes through. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that he is God's final word to us. If you want to understand who God is, like understand Jesus. He's the one that rescues us. He's the one that like gives us an inheritance to look forward to and lavishes his grace upon us like relationally in every other way. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, as, as Paul was talking about his commission um, from the Lord, about what his mission was as a like proclaimer of the good news of Jesus, he says this, that Jesus is talking to him. He says, Paul, your mission is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God. Like, I'm sending you, like Paul, so that you can re- rescue people from Satan's captivity, from his dominion. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins, so they can experience my like, lavish grace upon them, and the forgiveness and the relational can, like, repair that the gospel does in bringing them to me. And so they would know their inheritance that among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, that, that like everything that we desire will be found in Jesus because we have a king who is worthy of our praise because he, he rescues us from Satan's dominion, he forgives our sins, and he gives us an inheritance. So please stand with us as we, as we just close and, and we'll sing the song and then I'll pray. Just thank you for your faithfulness to us as your people that no matter what assails us if we belong to you that you will raise it up you raise us up on the last day that 
we won't be lost, that you'll see us safely home. And so, Father, I just pray you help us to live in just the confidence of your character and your goodness and your willingness to forgive, that we'd find our righteousness in you, and that we would reflect your character to all those people that we come into contact with. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.